Amen. Let's turn over to the book of Philippians chapter 3. This is where I started this series on Thursday night. I've been talking about knowing God. And I tell you, this is so important. And it's just passed over. Uh, I guess sometimes we assume that people ought to know this. But you know, most people really come to the Lord in a crisis situation. They come because they are physically sick. They are experiencing trauma in their life in some way. And they come to the Lord to get help. And uh, it is true that God loves you and wants to heal your body and bless you financially and heal your marriage and all of these kind of things. And all of that's true. But if you aren't careful, you'll get to where you only seek the Lord for what He can give and not for Him Himself. And that is absolutely wrong. And that's what leads to so many problems in the Christian life. There are so many people that are, in a sense, like a little spoiled kid that just comes to their parent every time they need something, every time they need help, and you draw on the parent. But then other than that, you forget the parent. You don't ever tell them thank you. You don't build your relationship. You do your own thing. You'd rather have your own friends. But every time you get in trouble, you know where your source is, and you go running back there. And just like a parent, you know, you love your kids and you help them. But, boy, God is just so much more than that. He's not just where we go to receive things. He loves us. God is is totally different than what most people know Him to be. They see God as a harsh, mean, judgmental person. And He's not like that at all. God is a loving Heavenly Father that desires to have relationship with you more than you desire to have a relationship with Him. And so I've been talking about that this is the whole goal of salvation. That's what it's all about. Uh, Last night I shared that the number one hindrance against us truly knowing God is because we are so physical dominated. We only use our five senses and we try and perceive God in some physical, tangible, natural way. And again... uh, Sometimes spirit-filled people get caught in this more than, say, denominational people. Because when you experience the baptism of the Holy Spirit, there are supernatural things. You can feel the presence of God. You can get really excited under the anointing of God. And you can feel tangibly the presence of the Lord. And if you aren't careful, you'll get to where you become a feeling junkie. And if you don't feel the presence of the Lord, you don't believe He's there. Whereas sometimes denominational people who don't believe that you can experience God in any real tangible way, they just have to go by faith. That's the only thing they've got. (laughs) But you know what? You can get to where you are uh, trapped in the fact that God, you felt God. You know, some of us in our devotional times and stuff, we are praying and asking God to touch us. And if God was to touch you and if you were to have a goose bump or an angel appeared to you or something happened, it would ruin you. Because then, the next day, you'd have to have at least the equal manifestation of God's power or you'd feel like, God, what's wrong? Why didn't you do something? And the truth is, He's with you all of the time. And there are these special things that happen, but we we get addicted to that and uh, it hinders us from coming to know the Lord. If you didn't get last night's message, I encourage you to get a CD or a DVD of that because you need this. It talks about, Paul said that, He used to know Jesus after the flesh, but he doesn't know him that way anymore. You can't really worship God in the flesh. You must worship him in spirit and in truth, John 4, 24. And so we talked about that last night. And then this morning, what was I talking about this morning? Who listened? 
It was something really good. Oh, it's how that... The only way you can really get into the spirit realm is through the Word of God. God's words that He speaks unto you, they are spirit and they are life. And then we went over to 2 Peter chapter 1 where it says, All things that pertain unto life and godliness come unto us through the knowledge of Him who has called us to glory and virtue. And this knowledge has given us these exceeding great and precious promises that through these we can know Christ. So basically, if you want to get into the spirit, Getting into the Spirit isn't folding your hands in a certain position or closing your eyes or doing any of the religious things that some people equate with being spiritual. Being spiritual is being dominated by the Word of God. God's Word is Spirit and it is life. And you go by what the Word says and not by what you feel. The Bible says that God is with us always. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. Where two or three are gathered together in His midst, there He is in the midst of us. That's what the Bible says. And yet, how many times do we come into church and say, Oh God, come and just be with us today. We ask you to come and to do these things. That's a stupid prayer. He said He's already with you, that He'll never leave you nor forsake you. And then we pray as we leave that place, God, go with us as we leave here and just be with us this week. Stupid prayer. How's God going to answer a prayer like that? He says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. The only way He could answer your prayer is to break His word violate his promise, leave, and then come back to answer your prayer. I know some of you think, I'm, well, you're making a big deal out of nothing. No, it's important. You know why we pray stupid prayers? Because we don't believe what the Word says. The reason we plead with God to come and anoint us is because we don't believe what the Word says, that he that hath anointed you is Jesus Christ. Jesus said, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. He didn't pray for it to come. He says, it's already there. Most churches that I go into will get me in a back room and they'll pray that God will anoint me. And I, I, I'm, I'm so polite and kind and I never say anything that would offend anybody. So I usually don't say anything. What, but I'm sitting there thinking, you know what? If you don't believe I'm anointed, why did you invite me to come in the first place? Why would you wait until 10 minutes before I'm up here to ask God to anoint me? That's a stupid prayer. God would be unjust to call me to preach his word and then not give me his ability to be able to do it. And you know what? I know that I'm operating in God's ability. You may not know that. Some of you may question it. But you know what? I used to be an introvert. I couldn't even look at a person in, in the face and talk to them. I couldn't talk to a person one-on-one. -on -one. And now I'm preaching to millions and millions and millions of people. I am doing something that it is impossible for me to do. I know that God has anointed me. And so I don't go and ask God to do what he promised that he already would. I don't ask God to heal me when he says, by his stripes you were healed. See, all of these things indicate that we don't know God. And so we've got to start going by what the Word says. The Word says that God has never leave us nor forsake us. I don't care whether you feel that or not. God's always with you. But I don't feel it. We've gotten to where we've enthroned feelings to the place that feelings are more important than the Word of God. The Word of God says this, but this is what I feel. I feel pain in my body, so I couldn't be healed. That's not true. I'm going to share some of this with you tonight, if I can get through with the introduction. <laughs> so let's go back to Philippians chapter 3. These are the verses that I started with where Paul talked about that he wanted to know him. Philippians chapter 3, in verse 7, he says, But what things were 
gained to me those I counted lost for Christ. Yea, doubtless I count all things but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but done that I may win Christ. What a great attitude. If every person in here had this attitude that knowing Jesus was more important than anything else, everything else in comparison to knowing Jesus is like done. What a word picture. If every one of us believed that, I guarantee you, your life would be just, I mean, headed straight up. Miracles, joy, peace, power, prosperity, blessing, everything in your life would be going through the roof if we would just esteem God first in our life the way that this is describing. That's without exception. If your life isn't absolutely uh, supernatural, then you haven't counted everything in comparison to Jesus is done. You're doing other things and being occupied. That's, that's just the bottom line. This is how important knowing Jesus is. And here's the results of this. In verse 9 it says, And be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. In verse 10, That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. In verse 10, he was seeking, in verse um, 8, he says that he had already counted everything lost and done compared to knowing Christ. And then in verse 10, he talks about that I might know him. So this is a progressive thing. It's not like you just know God one time and have him figured out and never get this figured out. He goes on to say down here uh, in verse 13, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do. That's another secret, is just do one thing. Put God first. Seek first the kingdom of God, and I guarantee you everything else will be added unto you. But this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and pressing, uh, reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. So knowing God isn't a static thing. It's not like you just encounter God one time and you've got Him figured out. You know, I wish I had time to turn over to Exodus chapter 32 and chapter 33 about Moses. But Moses knew God as nobody in his day did. God talked to him face to face. Matter of fact, God even rebuked other people. Korah, Dathan, and Abiram in the 16th chapter of the book of Numbers came out and spoke against Moses and says, What makes you think you're the only one God can use? We're all the Levites. We are all the ministers of God. You take too much upon yourself. And God came down and opened the earth, swallowed Korah, Dathan, and Abiram and 250 men alive into the pit and the earth closed on them. And then God appeared and said in an audible voice, If anybody among you wants to talk to me, I'll give you a dream, a vision, a revelation. But my servant Moses isn't that way. I'll talk to him face to face. Boy, Moses was a powerful man. And yet Moses, in in Exodus chapter 32, he cried out and he says, God, show me your ways that I may know you. A man who already had talked to God face to face, had seen the burning bush, had called these ten plagues upon the uh, nation of Egypt, had delivered the Israelites out of bondage. The man who had done all of these things, who went up into the mountain and came down and his face was shining. After that, he says, show me your ways that I might know you. You don't ever know God completely. God is infinite. God is bigger than what we can 
receive in our little finite brain. It's a continual process. If God was to reveal everything about himself to us at one time, it'd, you'd just uh, overload. Amen. You'd self-destruct. You know, the reason I believe the Bible says no man can see God and live, it's not because God's going to kill you if you see him. He wants to be, stay hidden. That's not it. It's that God is so awesome. These physical bodies cannot contain the glory of God. If you were to see all of God, we would self-destruct. Sometimes we miss that because we saw Jesus. And again, like I was teaching last night, Jesus had flesh around him that, that hid who he really was. But on the, when uh, John saw him on the Isle of Patmos and he saw the resurrected Christ, man, he fell at his feet as if he was dead, no longer putting his head on his chest anymore. But now he saw Jesus as he really was. If we were to really see God in all of his glory, I guarantee you, it, you just can't live and do that. And so he says here that we might know him. This is a progressive thing. He already knew him, but he wanted to know him more. And I believe that verse 9 is a key. And what I want to do tonight is instead of just teaching one thing, I'm going to mention a lot of different things that I believe are keys to knowing God. And I'm going to refer to some teachings and things that I got that if something is quickened to you, you ought to get these teachings and study it out further. But this is exactly the way that I began to know God. First of all, I was born again when I was eight years old and I knew Jesus as my Savior and it was genuine. I was made fun of the next day in the third grade because I had become a Christian. They could tell I was different. Eight years old. And my friend says, what's different about you? I got saved. Amen. And I knew him as Savior, but I became religious. And I studied the, I read my daily Bible readings is what we called it in the Baptist church every day of my life from the time I was eight years old until I was 18. I never, ever, ever missed. I remember one time being brought home from a rodeo and it was like one o'clock in the morning and they put me in bed and I woke up because I hadn't read my daily Bible readings and I had to read them before I could go to sleep. I mean, it was just, I did that. I studied the Word, but it wasn't alive to me. It wasn't like I was talking about this morning. I was reading it with a religious mindset. Jesus said in Matthew chapter, or excuse me, Mark chapter 7, verse 13, that the, you make the Word of God of none effect through your tradition that you've received. Traditions, doctrines of man can just totally void the power of the Word of God. And this is what happened to me. I remember after I had this experience on March the 23rd, 1968, and the Word came alive to me, I remember opening up the Bible, the scriptures that I knew. I'd read them. And like, for instance, in Acts chapter 3, where Jesus healed the man at the gate of the temple, my religious culture had taught on those, but every time they would spiritualize it and say that we were all like cripples before we met Jesus. And when you ask Jesus into your life, no longer are you a spiritual, emotional cripple. Jesus will heal you and you can uh, rise up and walk into heaven with him. And they would spiritualize it. And you know what? This, this sounds weird, but after I had that experience with the Lord, I read Acts chapter 3, and for the first time in my life, it dawned on me that the guy was physically healed. <laughs> I had heard it spiritualized so many times, it never crossed my brain that this was a real miracle. It was always symbolic. 
religious traditions and doctrines of man just totally gut the Word of God and take the power out of it. And that's the way I read my Bible. I was reading the Bible, but it wasn't alive to me. I knew Him as Savior, but I didn't really know the Lord. It was like I was always listening to somebody else tell me. I remember when my dad died that the Baptist pastor came over, and it was an Easter Sunday morning. And he said, uh, God needed your dad in heaven more than you needed him. The Lord took your dad home this morning is what he said. And I remember as a 12-year-old kid thinking, why does God need my dad? I thought, that doesn't make sense. But you know what? I didn't know God. And so I just took other people's opinion and thought, well, it must have been God's will. And I accepted that. And that's the way that I was living my life. And one of the things that was taught, whether it was taught exactly this way, I believe it was because nearly everybody who's been through the religious system comes up with the same conclusion. But I came to believe that God loved me and would answer my prayers and use me proportional to how holy I was living. I had to earn and deserve the blessing of God. And so from the time I was 8 until I was 18, I was seeking God and I was wanting God's power. I remember when my dad died, I spent six months praying and I even fasted for him as an 11-year-old kid. Fasted for him thinking maybe that would make God heal him if I would fast. And I did everything I knew. And yet I wasn't seeing any victory. I didn't have any power in my life. But I got on this treadmill of trying to earn God's favor. And like I told you, I was an introvert. I couldn't look at a person in the face. And yet I was told so many times that you had to do something for God. You had to witness. If you didn't witness, there'd be blood on your hands. And I was condemned and scared so much that I would psych myself up. I'd spend an hour psyching myself up so that I could go out and knock on doors and tell somebody about Jesus. I forced myself to do things totally And I was doing everything I knew. I lived holier than the preachers that pastored our churches. I have never said a word of profanity in all my 59 years. I've never taken a drink of liquor. I've never smoked a cigarette. I've never tasted coffee. Some of you are thinking, coffee? (laughs) You know, coffee and booze aren't the same thing. You've got scriptures that say you can drink coffee. Mark chapter 16, verse 18 says, You can drink any deadly thing and it shall not harm you. Amen. (laughs) I'm just saying, I lived a holy life. Man, this is Mr. Righteous right here. But you know what happened? I, I thought that God wouldn't love me and wouldn't bless me unless I was holy. And I started trying to be holy and I lived holier than probably any person in here or certainly nobody in here probably outbeat me. There might be some people in here who lived up to the same standards. But I lived holier than most people and yet there was still no power. There was still no victory in my life. And it was just, I was trying and I was thinking that if I just do a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more, then maybe God would move in my life. And here's the thing that changed my life. And I believe that this is exactly what Philippians chapter 3 verse 9 is describing. On March the 23rd, 1968, Saturday night, this will show you how religious I was. Every Saturday night for years, me and my best friends would get together and we would pray from about 10 till 11 o'clock at night on Saturday night. That's what we did. 
as 18-year-olds was pray on Saturday night. And so we would get together and pray, and we would sometimes have the leaders of the church get with us. And one time this uh, youth director, Marion Warren, and he was different. He's the guy that if he were here this morning that the church actually took a vote whether they should kick him out of the church because he would say, praise the Lord, hallelujah. And they thought that was sacrilegious that somebody would say that. He had an excitement about him that other people didn't have. And anyway, he was in that prayer meeting, and while we were still sitting around talking about things, Marion just hit his knees and started praying. And uh, when Marion prayed, it was awesome. He would talk to the Lord, and the Lord would talk back to him. It was different than my prayers. I just pray, God, forgive us of our many sins, bless us, send revival, help us, if it be your will, for Jesus' sake, amen. And it... You know what? It was always the same kind of thing. I just, I learned it from people. I'd pray, parrot other people's prayers. But Marion would talk to God and talk about anything. And God would talk back to him. And it was interesting. And I'd, I enjoyed listening to Mary, Marion pray. But once he prayed, there was nothing left for me to say. <laughs> this is before I had the baptism of the Holy Spirit and spoke in tongues. And so, you know, I always would pray first. And get my prayer out of the way so that I could enjoy his prayer. Well, this night he just hit his knees and started praying. And he prayed for 30 or 40 minutes. Prayed for everybody in the world. And you know what I was thinking? I was thinking, what am I going to look like when it comes my turn to pray? This guy's already said everything. Everybody's going to think I'm a dud. And I was mad at Marion for praying before me. And I had anger and bitterness in my heart. And I, I was thinking bad thoughts about Marion while he was praying. And I don't know how all of this happened. But you know what? It's just like God pulled back a curtain and showed me how self-righteous and how religious and what a hypocrite I was. And it's exactly what this verse said. I had been trying to maintain self-righteousness, a righteousness that came by the law. I was living holy. I wouldn't dip or cuss or chew or go with those that do. I was living holy. I looked down my nose. I condemned other people. I was doing all of these things, but I was making the mistake of thinking that God would love me and answer my prayers and bless me proportional to how good I lived. And Paul here said that you have to be found in him, not having your own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. There are two types of righteousness. There is a self-righteousness that you have to have to get along with people. If you don't live a righteous, godly life, People are going to condemn you. You can be arrested. You can be thrown in jail. Things are going to happen. You need to maintain a self-righteousness to relate to people. But when it comes to God, self-righteousness is useless. It has zippo, zilch, nada to do with anything. And you know what I'm saying? I don't know if you're understanding, but what I'm saying is contrary to 99% of Christianity's message. Christianity is preaching that if you want God to answer your prayers, be holy. Do this. You've got to be worthy for God to move in your life. And that's exactly where I was. And I tell you, if you think that, that is the number one impediment to you knowing God. Because you don't understand that God is, doesn't move in our life proportional to what we deserve. 
The truth is, see, people who think that you have to be holy and do all of this, I have people get mad and walk out of my meetings when I preach on stuff like this. I got kicked off of a a network of radio stations last year because they said I was saying that you could just live in sin and God loves you. And they, they said that's impossible. And they kicked me off. I've been kicked off of television stations. I've had a lot of people persecute that and say things against it. And what they don't understand is that when you were sitting here and saying, but I believe you've got to be holy. That's a relative statement. Holy compared to whom? If you compare yourself to other people, I might look good compared to some of you. I might have lived a holier life. I've never done the things that you've done. But who wants to be the best sinner that ever went to hell? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The truth is that I might look good compared to you, but if you compare yourself to God's standard, none of us, none of us have any right to claim justice in the sight of God. I don't care how much you pray. I don't care how much you study the Word. I don't care how holy you are. You are fallen and infinitely short of God's standard of perfection. So see, there is a self-righteousness that may help you in relation to other people and to the law, but when it comes to God, you can't be righteous enough. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. If you miss heaven by an inch, you miss it by a mile. And you have to, first of all, come to the end of your trust in yourself. And this is exactly what happened to me. I was in that prayer meeting. I was thinking all these rotten thoughts and it was all based in selfishness about what are people going to think about me. And I was proud of my holiness and my standard and everybody looked at me as a spiritual leader and a spiritual giant. And I was thinking about what are people going to think about me. And God just pulled a curtain. But I don't even know how this happened, but in a moment's time, I saw myself through God's eyes on the external, not in the spirit, but outwardly. And I realized I was a hypocrite. And I realized I was trusting in my own righteousness and not in God's righteousness. And I realized that, man, my righteousness was like filthy rags. That's what it says in Isaiah chapter, I think, 64, 6. All of our righteousness is like filthy rags. And if you look that word up in the Hebrew, it's talking about a menstrual cloth is what it's talking about. Filthy, defiled. It's like a menstrual cloth. Your goodness, all of the things that you're bragging about, your great abilities are nothing compared to God. And if somebody's taking offense at what I'm saying and saying, well, how dare you say that about me? That shows that you don't know God. You have you have de throned God and put him down to a level to where God is similar to us or something like that. It always amuses me, these programs that show God somehow or another in a human form. And he always has these human traits and he's usually got a little bit of sin and attitude in him and stuff like this. And we try and put God on the human level. I guarantee you, if you've ever seen God, uh, there's no comparison. There's no way a person who is proclaiming their own goodness and saying, I believe you've got to be holy for God to use you. You don't have a clue who God is. You don't even have a clue. You might look good compared to me, but not compared to God. And see, he says that you've got to be not found in your own righteousness, 
but in the righteousness which is of God by faith. And then in verse 10, that you might know Him. I believe that the number one thing, the number one step in knowing God is that you have to, first of all, get a relative comparison of your self-righteousness to God's perfect standard of holiness and realize that there is nothing you can do to ever appease the wrath of God through you bargaining and promising that you'll be good and that you'll never do this if you'll just do that. You've got to understand that none of us can stand before God on the basis of our own goodness. We have to come and just throw ourselves on God in mercy, humble ourselves and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You have to receive relationship with God based on grace. And if you think that you have to do things in order to get God to move in your life, you don't know God. And that is a huge impediment to knowing God because you think that God is dealing with mankind based on what we deserve. I'm going to give you a clue. God has never had anybody qualified working for him yet, and he never will. God uses all of us by grace. And this is why some people can't understand how God could use these people. And then they go out and commit adultery or they steal money and they think, I thought that person was of God. I thought that was God working through them. It was. And they say, but they turned out to be a crook. In other words, what you're saying is, if there was sin in their life, God wouldn't use them. If God only used people that didn't have sin in their life, he wouldn't use anybody. There's nobody that doesn't have, you know, you may not have adultery and you may not have uh, lying and stealing and things like that, but there's none of us that have everything all worked out. God uses us because of He is mercy, not because of our holiness. And if you don't understand that, then you haven't even got to first base in knowing God. You still think that God is dealing with people based on their performance and giving you what you deserve. That is not God. You know, if you tried to have a relationship with me, but if every time you did anything wrong, and, and if you could impute unto me God qualities to where I knew everything about you, I knew every thought, I knew every action, I knew what you were doing when nobody else knew what you were doing. And if I knew everything about you, and every time you ate that chocolate, that you promised you wouldn't eat. Every time that you watched that show, every time you looked at something on the internet, every time you had a thought go through your mind that you shouldn't have, and if I was there saying, you're wrong, how dare you do that? And if if you could put it into human terms, and if I knew all of that stuff about you, and if I had that attitude, there wouldn't be a person in here that would want to be my friend. Because all I'd do is be condemning you and telling you that you're wrong and pointing out everything that's wrong. And you know what? That's what we've been told that God's like. People that don't know God are saying that. That is not the way that God is. God is not imputing your sin unto you. And like I said, I'm not going to preach on this. I'm coming close to preaching on this. I just want to mention that this is something you've got to learn. You need to get a tape set that I've got back there entitled, Whose Righteousness? And it'll describe the two types of righteousness and show how that it's only the righteousness that comes by faith. A faith righteousness, not a works righteousness that enables us to stand in the presence of God. Boy, you've got to understand this. And see, I learned it because I, I, the Lord showed me all of my self-righteousness and that I was trying to earn God's blessing in my life. And 
in just a moment's time, I realized all that was wrong. It was revelation. It was just imputed unto me by God. And I spent like 45 minutes. Normally my prayer was a minute, two minutes, three minutes. And I spent 45 minutes turning myself inside out and in front of my best friends, in front of the leaders of the church, in front of the youth director, I confessed every rotten thing, things that I didn't even know were wrong with me until God started showing me this. I showed attitudes. I turned myself inside out and presented myself as a vile hypocrite. I repented of everything that I could. And based on the theology that I had, I thought God was going to kill me. That's not an exaggeration. I expected God to kill me right then that night. But I was going to confess everything I could so that if he killed me, hopefully I'd go to heaven instead of going to hell. And I was just repenting of everything, naming everything. And to my surprise, after I'd named everything, I mean, there was nothing left to say. I didn't hold back anything. And once I just totally laid myself there and said, God, I'm sorry. I repent. Have mercy on me. And I had nothing left to say. And I was flat on my face. All of a sudden, supernatural love flowed through me. And for four and a half months, I was gone someplace. God poured a tangible physical love. Charles Finney said it was like waves of liquid love flowing over him. Moody talked about feeling like a honey or something coming over him. The love of God literally overwhelmed me. And you know what? I began to start knowing God. And the key to it was I wasn't proclaiming my own righteousness anymore, but I came and just humbled myself. God isn't going to reward your self-righteousness by giving you some experience or touching your life. It's only when you reach the end of yourself that you start finding God. And one of the reasons that a lot of people don't really know God is because they've never come to the end of themselves. They still think that God is so blessed to have them. God, what an awesome choice. No wonder you chose me. I can see the wisdom of it. Boy, you just get me the platform. You get me introduced and I can handle it from here. Eh, that's not right. You got to come to the end of yourself. You got to find out that you are nothing before you can find out who God is. Because if you think that God is having a relationship with you because he is just so thrilled to have somebody as wonderful as you to fellowship with and, and to come to him, then you know what? You don't even know God. Again, we are so human-oriented. We look at ourselves and compare ourselves among ourselves and measure ourselves by ourselves, which the Bible says is not wise. But we do that, and we have this sense of relative worth. And in our society today, we have this thing about self-worth. Everybody's got to have a good self-image. And we have even churches holding seminars about how to build self-esteem. And we tell our kids, oh, that you're great. And we don't want to give tests or anything that would let them know that they aren't as good as anybody else. We don't want any competitive sports where they may not win first place. It might hurt their self-esteem. I tell you, that's, that's a demonic attitude. I believe in self-esteem, but Christ esteems what it really is, my born-again self-esteem. I know who I am in Christ, and I've got a good opinion of the born-again me, but you know what? In myself, I know that I am a fallen human being, and my flesh is capable of anything that anybody else's flesh is capable of. 
And you've got to come to the end of yourself before you find the beginning of God. Boy, that is powerful. And that happened to me March the 23rd, 1968. And I guarantee you, immediately I began to know God in a way that I had never known Him before. And one of the things I knew was that God loved me completely independent of anything that I deserved. It wasn't based on me being lovable. God loved me because He was love and not because I was lovely. I knew that. And then the next major thing that happened was I struggled after the emotion wore off and I couldn't feel tangibly the love of God anymore. I got to wondering what I did to cause this to happen and what I did to cause it to leave. And I got desperate seeking God and trying to figure out how could God love me at my very worst. At the first time in my life, for the first time I knew that I wasn't worth loving is when I experienced the love of God. And I started trying to figure this out, and I could not understand. It took me two or three years before I got a revelation. And basically, it was when I got drafted and sent to Vietnam. One of the best things that ever happened to me, I just had to sit there and keep my nose in the Word 15 hours a day. And I just started reading the Word out of desperation. There was nothing else to do. And I started reading the Word, and God started showing me things and teaching me things. And here is one of the major revelations about God that transformed my life. And I've got it back there in a teaching called Spirit, Soul, and Body. I began to understand God is a spirit, John 4, 24. And those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And that God looks at me in the spirit. And I begin to learn through the word, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, all things are become new. And I begin to realize that, see, the reason I was struggling to understand, God, how could you love me? Because I don't even love me. There's things in me that are wrong. God, how could you love me? The reason God can love me and you is because you look on the outward appearance. 1 Samuel chapter 16 verse 7 says, Don't look on the height of his stature or anything else because man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And I began to realize that the reason I was confused is because I had always looked on the outer appearance. I'd looked at my actions I'd looked on the external person and thinking that I had to be holy out here to be able to have a relationship with the holy God. But what happened when I got born again, God put a holy spirit on the inside of me. Ephesians 4.24 says, And that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. See, when you get born again, you aren't in the process of becoming righteous. That born again part of you was created righteous and truly holy. And God is a spirit and God sees you in the spirit. And here's the problem. The reason that it's hard for you to believe the way that God feels towards you is because you go look in the mirror. And you see zits and gray hairs and wrinkles and bulges and ugly. And you look at this and think, God, how could you say that I'm perfect? There's many scriptures that talk about us being perfect and we go look in the mirror or you search your soulish realm, your emotions, and you think, man, I'm not perfect. I, I got this bad attitude. I've got unforgiveness over here. I got worry. I got fear. And we think I just, the Bible is so hard to understand. 
It's because we don't know that there is a third part of us, the spirit that is completely brand new. And in your spirit, you are as righteous and pure and holy as Jesus is. 1 John chapter 4 verse 17 says, Herein is our love made perfect that we may have boldness in the day of judgment because as he is, talking about Jesus, so are we. And it didn't say so are we going to be in the sweet by and by. It says so are we in this world. The only way to understand that verse is to understand it's not talking about your actions. There's not a person in here that's acting as perfect as Jesus is, that in your mind thinks as perfectly as Jesus does. That's talking about in your spirit. The born-again part of you is as righteous and as pure as Jesus is. The spirit that's on the inside of you right now is identical to the way it is going to be a billion years from tonight. Your spirit's not going to be changed. One-third of your salvation is already over and complete. And according to Ephesians chapter 1, that spirit on the inside of you has the same resurrection power in it that was used to raise Jesus Christ from the dead. Now see, these are some of the things that begin to show me things about God. And it's how I've come to realize, learn God. And so many people that I've prayed with this week, they come and they say, but I've got this problem and I've got that. I asked one woman tonight, she said that she was doing just fine and one day she woke up and I forgot what it was now that she said she had, but she, she had something. And, and she says, I've suffered ever since. And I said, well, what did you do when you woke up with this problem? And she just looked at me like, well, I went to the doctor. I said, that's the problem. She says, what do you mean? I said, you didn't take the authority and the power. You had resurrection life on the inside of you. And instead of using what God gave you, you ran to the doctor and asked man to help you. You know why most people immediately turn to the doctor? And then part of her problem was she had all this medication and it was causing, you know, every pill they give you has got a bad side effect to it that causes more problems. Like I saw a commercial on TV where it was like, I think, for headaches. And it says, take this pill. And then it gives the little, you know, disclaimer and says, this might cause runny stools, often diarrhea, sexual impotency, heart attack, death. And I thought, man, I think I'd rather have the headache. Why would you take a pill that's going to do all that stuff to get rid of your headache? Let me keep my headache. Anytime you take medication, you are messing with this body. And anything that helps you in one area is going to hurt you in another. You are just asking for trouble. I know some of you really like that. And there's people that take pills to get up, to take pills to go to bed, takes pills to do everything. God forbid. All you need is the gospel. But anyway, this woman had just, she says, I said, what'd you do? And she, well, I went to the doctor. And I said, you know what? If you would know that you have the same power on the inside of you that raised Christ from the dead, you wouldn't be so quick to run everywhere else asking for help. You've got resurrection power living inches from whatever is hurting you. Why don't you draw on that? Leave the doctors for the people that don't know God. Let them help the people that don't know God. They're all overworked. I'm not against doctors. If it hadn't been for doctors, the Christians would have all been dead. They certainly hadn't been trusting God. So I'm not against doctors, but I'm saying just let the doctors minister to people that don't know. See, I came to real, and some people think, well, 
Well, I've got sickness in my body. I don't care what you say. See, you're in touch with your physical realm. You know what pains you have, all, but you don't know who you are in the spirit. When I found out that God had changed me and that in Christ, I am not in the process of becoming righteous. I was created in righteousness and true holiness. I'm not in the process of trying to get God to give me faith. I've already got the faith of the Son of God living on the inside of me. I'm not in the process of trying to get into relationship with God. God has already made me perfect and complete in my spirit realm. See, when I understood this about God, totally changed my attitude about him, totally changed the way I began to relate to him. And it allowed me to start understanding now how I could be righteous. Before that, I couldn't understand. I read in scriptures that I was the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Jesus became sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 says, Jesus has made unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. I saw these scriptures, but I'd look in the mirror and I'd think, God, this can't be righteous. How can you say that I'm righteous? I begin to understand that God is a spirit and God looks at me in the spirit and my spirit man is changed. And now I relate to God spirit to spirit. And now I can enter boldly into the presence of God, even when I've sinned, even when I've missed it even if I'm not perfect. And see, this is where most people, they haven't even got past these first two little things I'm mentioning. Most people, if they sin, if they do something wrong, like I talked to another woman who uh, a year ago came and got prayer and she had MS and she got to where she could stand and walk upstairs with the use of a rail and she was doing good and then she lost it. And I told her, first of all, Romans eleven twenty nine. 29. See, here's an, the Word will tell you things about God. It'll tell you how God is. Some people think God is very easily offended. Don't anybody move. Nobody move. Let's not grieve the Holy Spirit. Nobody talking. Nobody move. I think that's weird. <laughs> Boy, in Jesus' meetings... They were like three ring circuses. You had the scribes and the Pharisees over here saying, you're of the devil, you're Beelzebub. It's the prince of the devils that you're using to cast out devils. And over here there's demons manifested. And over here there's kids and there's babies. And they were there for three days. In one case, I guarantee you somebody had to go to the bathroom. And they didn't have porta potties. And it was like a three ring circus. Somebody was always moving. And there was thousands of people. And yet Jesus, you know, the Holy Ghost wasn't so offended that somebody coughed or moved, that he left and we grieved the Holy Spirit. People are saying stuff like that because they don't know God. I got a little bit off the subject right there. Where was I going when I said that? What was I saying? Anyway, it was good. Oh, the lady was going up the stairs and she had these things. And I said, but see, the gifts and the callings of God are without repentance. God doesn't leave and get offended. You don't lose something. I said, the same power that operated in you a year ago is still there. You just haven't been operating in it. And I said, and you're probably condemned because you got sidetracked and quit walking in that faith. And she said, yes. And so I've had to minister to her. But see, God's not like that. God isn't one of these people that gets offended. If you do one thing wrong, that's it. I'm not blessing you anymore. No, God's a good God and he never, his power never comes and goes. You come and go. 
You may not be aware of it. You're in and out and up and down, but God's the same. God is always the same. See, most people don't know that about God. How can He be that way? How can God treat me consistently when I'm inconsistent? Because God's a spirit and He's looking at you in the spirit. And in the spirit, you are righteous and pure and holy. And man, I learned this about God. And you know what? It gave me a new boldness to enter into the very presence of God that I could obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Not when I'd done everything right, but when I'd done everything wrong. I can come boldly before God and I'm still righteous and pure in my spirit. Boy, that opened up so much. That just transformed everything. And then one of the next things that this this led me to understand was in the Old Testament, there were times that God did punish people based on their actions. There are examples like Isaiah chapter 59, that my arm isn't short that it cannot say, nor my ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God. And I would see scriptures like that that seemed inconsistent with the fact that now I'm born again and I'm righteous and I'm holy and pure and I'm sanctified and perfected forever. That's what it says in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 10 and 14. And I would see these apparent contradictions and I couldn't understand it. And the Lord led me to understand, and that's what my teaching on the true nature of God is about, that the Old Testament dealt with people before they were born again. Their spirit was dead and corrupt, and so God dealt with them based on just exterior actions and punished them and dealt with them similar to the way that we deal with a child. You you can't sit there and wait until a child is mature enough to reason everything out. You have to get them to quit doing the wrong thing early, and so you tell a one-year-old, do that again and I'll spank you. They may not even know there is a God or a devil or heaven or a hell, but the next time the devil says, go take this toy from your brother, they'll say no because they're afraid of punishment. That's the way the Old Testament was. It punished people. The wrath of God, the box, the mildew, leprosy would be... God had struck people with leprosy. He struck Miriam with leprosy. He struck Uzziah with leprosy. He went out and killed 186,000 people, one angel in one night. And people see that and they think, boy, what's God like? God did that to try and keep these people from just throwing open the door and letting sin operate. He limited the amount of sin through fear of punishment, but he increased the condemnation and the sin consciousness and the unworthiness that had negative effects like this medication. He gave us a pill prior to getting born again, and it solved one problem, but it created other problems. It put fear of God, and people got the wrong impression of God. But when you get born again, now it's different. God sees you in the Spirit, and the law has been fulfilled. The law has passed away. God doesn't deal with us based that way anymore. And I tell you, there's very few people that have understood this. Most people are still trying to approach God with an Old Testament mentality. And if I had time, I could teach you some powerful things out of the book of Hebrews on that. But it says that the Old Testament law has been disannulled. The word annul means to make as if it never happened. Disannulled is just a superlative saying that it is total annihilation. The law has been obliterated. It's nailed to the cross. You are not supposed to be relating to God based on the Old Testament law. And somebody takes offense at that and says, Brother, I believe you still got to keep those Ten Commandments. Well, what about the one that says that you shall keep the Sabbath day and remember it to keep it holy? 
Christians, as a rule, do not keep the Sabbath day. They keep Sunday, which isn't the Sabbath. And all the Seventh-day Adventists are saying, yes! (laughs) You know what? You keeping the Saturday isn't the Sabbath either. The Sabbath is picture of a relationship. Second, uh, Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17 says, These things were shadows of things to come, but the very image of, is of Christ. Hebrews chapter 4 tells you what the Sabbath was a picture of. It's now a relationship with God that we enter into. If you are observing some day and not working on a certain day and thinking that you're keeping the Sabbath, you are a Sabbath breaker. But I say all of this because people think, well, man, you still got to keep all the Ten Commandments. The Sabbath we don't keep. If you believe you got to keep the Ten Commandments, you're going to have to make some major changes because the Sabbath is one of them. They're still good. They still tell you the truth. It reveals God's perfect standard. I'm not saying that we do away with the Ten Commandments. I think it's great to have them on the wall because it tells you what is a godly standard of morality. But we are not relating to God based on our outward actions. We're relating to God based on our faith in Jesus. And when, once you put faith in Jesus, He makes you a new person. And you come before God in spirit and in truth, not in the flesh, based on your actions. So I've mentioned three things that the Word reveals about God that will help you to know Him. First is you've got to quit being self-righteous. You've got to get out of self-righteousness and be found in Him having the righteousness as a faith. You've got to understand that when you get born again, your spirit is the part of you that gets changed. And in the spirit, you are perfect and holy and you are able to enter right into the very presence of God without any fear of rebuke because you are completely His workmanship. You are His righteousness. You are created righteous and truly holy. This will give you understanding about how God now can treat you in mercy instead of in punishment because in the spirit, you are as holy as Jesus is and He's not dealing with you on the law anymore, which only dealt with the external man. He's now dealing with you on who you are in Christ. Man, those three things. If you got those three things and if you were to meditate on that, I guarantee you it would totally transform your relationship with God. And one other thing I've got to mention tonight before I quit because I believe that this is the number one hindrance, the number one doctrine in the body of Christ that is detrimental and that's the sovereignty of God. And some people just gasped right there like, the sovereignty of God is, you know, foundational. It's doctor. Everybody believes in the sovereignty of God. I'll admit that God is sovereign if you will use sovereign the way the dictionary defines it. The dictionary says that sovereign means first in rank, order, or authority. Highest in authority. Independent. If you want to use any of those definitions for saying God is sovereign, I'm 100% with that. But religion has coined uh, a connotation that goes along with sovereign that means God controls everything that happens. He, nothing happens without His approval. And that's not true. That is contrary to the Word. And I tell you what, this will kill relationship with God. If you think that God is responsible for every vile, rotten thing that goes on in this fallen world, if you think nobody dies unless their number comes up, that it was God that chose for them to die. If you believe that nobody's born with a birth defect, if you believe that there is no sickness, that there is no problem but what God allows it, 
you are not going to have a good relationship with God because you are going to attribute to God things that are evil and totally from the devil. And I guarantee you that will give you a wrong impression of God and it will hinder your relationship with him. I got an email just not long ago of a person that's saying that they, because of negative things that happened in the church saying that this was God, they hated God and rebelled and have been going away from God their entire life until they heard me teaching on this and found out that God is a good God and they came back to the Lord. I can guarantee you there are many, many people in our society today that religion has misrepresented God and said God is the one who allowed the September the 11th terrorist attacks, that this is the judgment of God on America, that God is the one that's causing the gas prices to go up, and this is God who's doing these things and punishing us for taking prayer out of the schools. That is not accurate representing God. And some people think, well, nothing could happen but what God allows. I mean, Satan has to get God's permission. That's not true. Again, I've got a lot of teaching on this. I've got that uh, book entitled, the book or the tape set entitled The True Nature of God will help explain this. I've got a tape set entitled The Word Became Flesh that deals with this. You had not heard that yet. I'm preaching that next on television, but it's going to be good. But um, let me just give you one example. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You can't make that any clearer than that. God is not willing for a single person to perish and go to hell. That is God's will, that all men be saved. And yet Jesus himself said that more people are going to enter by the broad gate unto destruction than by the narrow gate unto everlasting life. He said, you choose. It is not God's will for anybody to be damned, and yet people are. Not because God allows it. He gave you the choice. And if you don't choose life, then Satan will destroy you. People go to hell. And it is not God who willed it and allowed it. You allow it. God allows what you allow. It just amazes me. I go to these funerals and people, like I remember one uh, guy that had just come from a funeral and was speaking at a full gospel businessman's meeting where I was doing the praise and worship at the meeting. And this guy came in and he said that he had just used Romans 8.28. It says, all things work together for good to them who love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. And he had just come from a funeral of two teenagers who had died in a car wreck. They had been drinking and doing drugs, were high, and were driving on a road that was raining. It was slick, and they took a corner too fast, slid off the road, went into a telephone pole, and it killed both of them. And he came, and he, start, he was preaching on, we know that God had a purpose. All things work together for good. That God did this. Boy, it made me mad to say that God caused those teenagers to kill themselves. God didn't kill them. Somebody said, well, they couldn't die without God's permission. God's not the one that started death. He told us not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because in the day that we eat thereof, we shall surely die. He warned us. He told us not to do it. God didn't put death into this earth. We brought death into this earth. And it says over in Hebrews chapter 2 that Satan is the one who had the power of death. God doesn't control. God doesn't have a circle uh, a date in heaven on a calendar circle that it's your number up. 
He promised every one of us 70 years, and if you're strong, you can go 80 years. If you die less than that, Satan snuffed your life out. Now, does that mean that you went to hell? No, that's not what that means. We're in a battle. It's no different than a person that's out in war getting killed. They die with honor. There's, I'm not saying that every person that dies premature that Satan takes them to hell or something like that. But I am saying Satan snuffed their life out somehow or another. God has allotted every single one of us a minimum of 70 years. That's not a maximum. It's a minimum. And he's allotted you that much. And you know what? If you die prior to that, Satan snuffed your life out. Satan beat you somehow. Most of us cooperate by eating all of the junk. Amen. And giving him a lot of help. But nonetheless, Satan is the one that steals our life from us. God's not the one that controls your life and everything that happens. I saw a, a deal on television where a woman was testifying that her and her daughter were captured by a guy, taken at gunpoint, driven out into the country. He raped both of them, the woman and her daughter, laid them on the ground, shot them in the back of the head, killed the daughter. The woman lived through it. And she was on a Christian television program saying, we know that God has a purpose that God uses this. God's getting glory out of this. Boy, that is terrible. That's terrible to impute that to God. If somehow or another you could prove that I raped and murdered a girl and shot her mother in the back of the head, and if I did that, there isn't a civilized nation on the face of the earth that wouldn't take me and prosecute me, and they should. And yet we have it even written into our contracts that you're insured against everything except acts of God's, tornadoes, hurricanes. And we blame God for all of these kind of things. We live in a fallen world that we caused. God didn't cause it. We caused it. We turned this earth over to Satan, the God of this earth. And tragedy and bad things happen, not because God caused it, but because we have allowed the devil to do this. And Satan is going about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Satan is the one that's doing that. The Lord told us to submit to un, unto God. James 4, 7. Submit yourselves therefore unto God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. That would be useless instructions if everything was really of God. If Satan couldn't do anything, if he was just Satan, if Satan was God's messenger boy and couldn't do anything without his permission, well then... Why would you resist it? You know, if you really believe that God is in control of everything, then you are a hypocrite to take medication and go to the doctor and try and get healed and get out of God's will if God's the one that put that on you. If, God, if you really believe this, if you really believe that God's in control of everything, then why would you resist being sick? Because it couldn't happen if God didn't allow it. Why would you resist demonic things? Let demons, let demons operate in you because they couldn't be there if God didn't allow it. Why would you vote for anybody to change anything and try and make it better? Because after all, everything that's happening is of God. People who preach that God controls everything are inconsistent. You cannot consistently do that. If nothing else, <laughs> there's probably some people in here right now who are really mad at me. And every time I preach this, I have religious people come up and I mean just, you are of the devil. This isn't God. What you're saying is of the devil. And I just turn it around and say, look, take your own teaching. I couldn't have said these things if God didn't will me to say it. 
they have to draw the line somewhere and usually it's with me. You're of the devil. Well, I couldn't be of the devil. God must have inspired me because he's sovereign. Nothing can happen without him saying it. That's inconsistent. You cannot consistently without any variation apply that doctrine, the sovereignty of God. But you can apply the doctrine that I'm talking about that if it's good, it's God. And if it's bad, it's the devil. God does not control everything. You have a choice. We have a demon, demons in this world that are doing things and you have a choice and God allows what you allow. And see, when I understood that, oh man, this has changed my life. Prior to that time, I actually introduced people to that demonic teaching and I've seen people die. I've seen people, a friend of Jamie and mine, prayed and asked for leukemia so that they could glorify God and they died. I've seen people die under that doctrine. But you know what? I've come to realize that that wasn't true and it's helped me to adjust. God's not the one that killed my father. God's not the one that's killed other people. When I see somebody die, I know it's not God that does it. People say, well... They were praying and believing. You don't know what's going on in a person's heart. There was one guy that I prayed for and I just was sure he was believing God and yet he died. Later, we found a diary and he said, you know what, I know I'm getting better. God is healing me, but I really am tired. I want to go home. I'm going to die, but I'm going to go ahead and keep saying the right things so that people, because they wouldn't understand, but he says, I'm leaving this record so that people will know that I just quit and went home. We didn't know that and everybody was perplexed until we found his diary. You don't know what's going on on the inside of a person. There's people that I think shouldn't die, that do die. But I know God's not the one that kills them. God's not the one that controls that. There's a lot of things involved in healing. There's so many things. Some people are just offended. You can, you can have unforgiveness. There's so many things that we can allow into our life that hinder us and keep the power of God from operating. But I've come to realize God is a good God. God only wants good for us. It says in James chapter 1, every, it says, do not err, my beloved brethren. The very thing it tells us not to err in is where the body of Christ errs the most. He says, do not err, my beloved brethren. Every good and every perfect gift comes from the Father of lights, comes down from above, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. When it says no variableness, that means that there's no exceptions. There's no, never a time that this happens. If you think that God is making you sick, that God has allowed it because you haven't been the person that you should and somehow or another it's correction or it's punishment, you'll never get healed. You've got to know that it's God's will. You've got to believe that when you pray, you are praying in agreement with Him. If you don't, then you have to pray one of these prayers, Lord, if it be your will. That's an unscriptural prayer. Some people say, well, Jesus prayed it. He did not. You can't find that in Scripture. Maybe in the reverse standard version that some of you use. But you know, the script, he, he didn't pray, Lord, if it be your will, what do you want me to do? If it be your will, let me avoid the cross. No, he, he knew what God's will was. And he says, God, I know that you want me to do this, but if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, I submit myself to your will. That's totally different than saying, who knows what God's will is. If it be your will, you just throw your prayer out there and wait to see what God does. No, that was a prayer of submission saying, not my will, but your be done. That's totally different than the way that people pray and say, if it be thy will. 
The scripture says in James chapter 1, verse uh, 5, it says, If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth all men liberally and upbraideth not. But let him ask in faith nothing wavering. He that wavers is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. Let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. If you doubt that God wants you well, if you doubt that God wants to save your marriage, if you doubt that God wants to prosper you, if you doubt that God wants to give you emotions and give you joy and peace, if you doubt in that, you will not receive anything. You cannot receive anything of the Lord. You've got to know what God's will is. And this is what the Word of God reveals to us, is the will of God. So I've only mentioned four things tonight, and I guarantee you this would radically change our relationship. And there are hundreds of things revealed through the Word of God about His nature and His character and who He is. But man, these four things would change your life. You've got to quit trusting in your goodness. You've got to get a relative sense of your unworthiness before you truly understand how good God is to forgive you. That's the first thing. You've got to understand that it's in the spirit that you got changed. And God is a spirit and He looks at you in the spirit realm. Man, you've got to understand that. To me, that's the key that unlocked all of the Word of God. That is the number one revelation in my life is spirit, soul, and body. You must understand that. And then you must understand that there's a difference between the way God dealt with people in the Old Testament and the way He deals with people in the New Testament, primarily because of the new birth. And we are now delivered from the law. It has been disannulled, totally annihilated and done away with. And you've got to find the new covenant way of praying and relating to God and not being under the old covenant law. And you've got to get out of using this excuse that God is sovereign and controlling everything. And we've got to recognize that God's not the one that's making the world a mess that it is. It's because people have a choice. And we are messing things up. And all of the tragedies that happen in your life aren't God-ordained. They are Satan. Or sometimes I think that Satan even takes notes on us. Not every bad thing that happens is the devil. I think sometimes the devil thinks, man, I could have never come up with that. You are making a wonderful mess of your life on your own. And so it's either you or the devil or a combination of the two, but the bad things in your life are not God. You must know that. And you must know that God is a good God. That Jesus came to give us life and to give it to us more abundantly. The devil came to steal, kill, and to destroy And if you ever get those two things confused, I guarantee you, it just makes you vulnerable to the devil. If you were fighting an enemy in a war and somehow or another that enemy could convince you that they were actually sent by your government to help you and so you invite them into your fort, into your fortifications, you give them access to everything thinking that they're friends, man, the enemy would love that. He'd just have a heyday. He'd kill you. He'd destroy you. And this is exactly what Satan is doing. There are people that are sitting there thinking that this sickness is God somehow or another making me better through bearing this sickness and this punishment. Or they will sit there and think that it's God's wrath upon them. And they, either way, they embrace it and accept it. The Bible says you have to resist the devil. 
to have him flee from you. And the word resist means to actively fight against. You've got to get violent against the devil. Matthew chapter 11, I believe it's verse 11 or 12 right there, says that since the days of John the Baptist, the kingdom of heaven is preached and the uh, kingdom suffers violence and the violent take it by force. You got to get violence. You got to get to a place that you know this is God, this is the devil, and I'm having what's of God. I resist the devil, and you got to get violent. This is what I was telling that woman when she said that she woke up and she had something on her. I said, Well, why didn't you take your authority? Why didn't you command it? Why didn't you do something? Most people don't do that because, first of all, they don't know what they have in the Spirit. They are confused, thinking, well, it couldn't have happened if God didn't allow it. All of those things are going to just destroy your relationship with God. You've got to know that God has already done it. He's placed His power on the inside of you. He told you to resist the devil. And the first thing that ought to happen when something bad happens is that you ought to jump right in the middle of it and go to saying, this is of the devil. I resist it. I refuse it. I refuse to have this. And you resist the devil and he'll flee from you. But instead, many of us, something happens and we go out and say, oh, my pain. <laughs> the doctor told me I've got emphysema. The doctor said, I've got... And we go ever, tell... Ever, you even name it. You claim it. It's yours. That's not resisting. Resisting isn't laying in bed, popping pills, watching as the stomach turns on television and saying, I'm just waiting on God. No, that's not resisting the devil. Man, you got to realize that you've got authority and power, and you got to fight against that thing. Do something. Amen? Amen? Anyway, I could go on and on and just keep sharing with you other things, but these little four things that I've talked about would transform your relationship. It's taken me 20, 30 years to learn those things. And you know what? You may have heard them tonight, but you didn't fully get it. I really encourage you to get the CDs or the DVDs of this meeting to get those books and teachings that I was talking about. If you would study this, brothers and sisters, I don't count myself to have arrived, but I've left. And I can tell you, my life is different than it used to be. And I'm telling you what has made the difference in my life. This is what has made my relationship with God work. And it would work for any person in here. And I encourage you tonight, rather than just wanting to get a touch from God, to get a healing so that you can go back and be exactly the same as you were before, I encourage you to get hold of these truths. Come to know God in spirit and in truth through the Word of God and let this work on the inside of you. And you know what? You won't have to worry about healing, about deliverance, about prosperity, about joy and peace. These things will come upon you and overtake you. Man, that's good. We're fighting a battle. We're in a war. And many of us are acting like we're at peace. We're in a fallen world. And you need to know God. You need these things. Amen? Amen. Praise God. Father, I just thank you for these truths. I thank you for what you've done in my life. I thank you for the way that the Word has changed my life. Thank you, Jesus, for choosing me. Thank you for revealing yourself to me. And Father, I pray for these people that you would, the Holy Spirit would bear witness with the things that I've said. That you would help people to make adjustments in their understanding and thinking. That Father, people would be motivated to get into the Word of God and find out whether what I'm saying is true or not. 
that, Father, they would go to the Word and they would establish things based on what your Scripture reveals. Father, I pray even the people that have been upset with me tonight because I've countered their doctrine, I pray that there would be a drawing of the Holy Spirit to go to the Word of God, to get these materials and at least listen and hear it out and evaluate whether it's true or not. Thank you, Jesus. I believe that people's lives are going to be changed because of these series of meetings, that we will know you and make you known to other people. Thank you, Heavenly Father. We agree and receive that. We pray, James chapter 1, that we receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save our souls. Father, we humble ourselves and we exalt you and your word. And I believe this is changing people's lives here tonight. In the mighty name of Jesus.